0: I can still remember the first Bible talk I ever gave. I was in seventh grade, and one of our middle school leaders asked me to help him give the lesson for youth group that night. Now, Ron was a cool young dude, just back from Vietnam, aviator sunglasses, army fatigues. The topic for the night was loneliness. Now, we had some curriculum to work with, but Ron thought that we could juice it up a bit if we started with a popular new song by a couple of guys named Simon and Garfunkel. The song he had in mind was I Am a Rock. It's a ballad sung by someone who's been so wounded and disappointed in relationships that they've chosen to do life alone. Apparently, the song struck a chord because half a century later, many of us could probably still sing along. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. It didn't occur to me at the time. But looking back, I wonder if Ron was working through his own feelings as he reentered civilian life. I wonder how many friends he'd lost in the war, how much pain he was carrying. And if like the songwriter, he was wondering if love and friendship were worth the risk. Now, I, I don't remember the discussion or the Bible passage we looked at, but apparently we didn't solve the loneliness problem. A recent survey by Signet Insurance reveals that a majority of Americans, 58% to be exact, are lonely. Now, that may not be all that surprising to us, but what is surprising is that young adults are twice as likely to be lonely as older adults. 78% of 18 to 24-year-olds report feeling lonely some or all of the time. 42% of adults aged 18 to 34 report always feeling left out. Just as surprisingly, parents are more likely to be lonely than non-parents. But I have to believe there are a few parents out there who wouldn't mind being lonely for a night or two. But uh, thanks to nearly three years of what we might call a tridemic of coronavirus, political divisiveness, and racial tension, we find ourselves more isolated, more wary more protective than ever when it comes to relationships. I wonder how many of us have hesitated to shake hands or hug as freely as we might have a few years ago. I wonder how many of us have had to navigate tense or awkward conversations at family gatherings over the holidays. I wonder how many of us have been hurt or disappointed or ghosted by someone we thought we knew and were close to? How many of us wonder if we still belong to some group of people we always felt at home with? Maybe it is safer to do life as a rock or an island. Well, as our teaching team thought and prayed together about where to go next on our teaching journey, we found ourselves drawn to the subject of relationships. Our ministry theme for this church year, September through June, is disciple-making, with God, with others, for the world. Uh, We're learning together how to be disciples and make disciples of Jesus. Now, back in the fall, we focused on life with God as we followed Moses and the people of Israel on their journey to the Promised Land. Uh, We talked about with-God practices like prayer and Scripture and silence and reflection Uh, We introduced something called the Discipleship Planning Tool uh, to help you chart and navigate a customized discipleship journey. And and by the way, if you're looking for a New Year's resolution that's way easier than losing weight, taking the Discipleship Survey is a great way to get some spiritual momentum as you head into the new year. And you can find that tool at grace.org the thejourney. But this winter, we'd like to focus on the with-others dimension of disciple-making. Because it turns out that things like hospitality and conversation and care are just as important to discipleship as prayer and fasting and Bible study. You can't be a disciple or make a disciple alone on an island. You have to be in relationships. But relationships, as we just pointed out, can feel more difficult and more dangerous than ever. So for the next seven weeks, we'll be exploring the one another's of the New Testament. There are about 20 of these uh, invitations to a with others kind of life. Now, we won't get into all of them, but, but we'll consider a few of them each week. And along the way, we'll be exploring the risks and the rewards of a with others life. So let's begin today with the most basic and most risky theme of all, love. Twelve times in the New Testament we're called to love one another. Five of them come from Jesus himself, but Paul, Peter, and John all get in on it. Whatever the answer to loneliness might be, it surely begins with love. So let's get to the letter that we call 1 John found toward the end of the New Testament. He talks about love all through the letter, but we're going to focus on a passage found in chapter 3. And today we're going to be discovering why love is so central to discipleship and why relationships are worth the risk. So let's go to 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verses 11 through 17. Let's read the whole thing, then we'll come back and take it apart a bit at a time. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Now, as best we can tell, John was the longest living of the original twelve disciples. And in his later years, he planted a church or churches in the region called Ephesus. But at a certain point, these believers ran into conflict with each other over doctrinal matters. And they actually split, parting company with each other, each side feeling justified and righteous about their point of view and about the separation. Now, it sounds awful from this vantage point until uh, we consider how many churches and small groups and friendships have been fractured by disagreements over race or politics or masks or worship styles the past few years. As as the founder of these churches, these, these broken relationships broke John's heart. So he writes three impassioned letters calling these believers back to the love and truth of Jesus that that brought them together in the first place. And here in this passage, we find ourselves at the very heart of this first letter. So let's take a closer look at what he had to say to them and to us. He begins, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. Now, when John says, this is the message you heard from the beginning, was was he talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry? or, Or was he talking about the beginning of God's revelation all the way back in the Old Testament? It's hard to say. But the best answer is probably both. Jesus spoke a lot about love. He said the first and greatest commandment was to love God and neighbor. But he was quoting the Torah when he said it, written thousands of years earlier. John is reminding us that love is the starting point and the end game. It's the foundation. It's the very essence of life with God. And those of us who consider ourselves God's people, who claim to be followers of Jesus, we of all people, John says, should get this right. It's all about love. And yet, from the beginning, from the very first family we meet in Scripture, we find people failing to keep this one commandment. John has to remind us not to be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Here you have flesh and blood brothers who who grew up together, laughed and played and skinned their knees together, so at odds with each other that one would literally beat the other to death. It's an awful story. So, so, So why is John bringing it up? Surely his readers weren't physically attacking each other. He's bringing it up in part because the whole thing happened over a spiritual disagreement over what kind of offering God was interested in. And in the same way for John's congregations, it was spiritual differences that were dividing the fellowship and inflicting emotional and relational pain on everyone involved. One commentator puts it this way, John's interest in the Cain story is in how the brothers destroyed each other because of anger fueled by religion. People who get in the way, some no doubt thought, must be eliminated or canceled or ghosted or attacked on social media. John is telling his readers and us that there is no place in the church for this kind of hostility, this kind of harm to be done to fellow human beings, to brothers and sisters in Christ especially when it's done under the guise of faith or spirituality or truth. The story of Cain and Abel helps us understand why someone might sing, hiding in my room, safe within my womb, I touch no one and no one touches me, I am a rock, I am an island. Relationships can be so complicated so painful, so disappointing? Are they worth the risk? Psychologists have identified something they call philophobia, the fear of love, the fear of being hurt, fear of being rejected, fear of being vulnerable. (laughs) Let's face it, life can be simpler alone. You can work, sleep, Spend, play, eat, watch on your own terms without even having to accommodate someone else's needs or moods or preferences. And faith can be simpler alone too. You can pray, read, worship, believe without having to deal with other people's practices or beliefs or convictions. Uh, Talk to any pastor today, and they'll tell you that that some Christians in in recent days are, are opting for a solitary faith experience. Attending services less often, or hardly at all. Not committing to a particular church or ministry. Dropping out of groups and ministries. And some people who do stay connected seem less likely to serve or engage with the same kind of intentionality they did just a few years ago. That's an alarming and unfortunate trend, not just for the church, but for those believers. I mean, life was simpler for Cain after his brother was gone, but was it better? Was he happier? think of all that he missed by no longer having a brother think of how beautiful and satisfying and bonding it could have been for the two of them if he would have taken the risk of dealing with his hurt and jealousy if he and abel could have worked through their their rivalry and come to appreciate each other and worship god together for the rest of their days Online church has been a lifeline for, for all of us these past few years. And we are so glad for those of you who have found us online and who are leaning into the online community that we're building. But, but, but some longtime church members have shared with me that, that they've gotten so used to the comfort and convenience of worshiping at home that they've fallen out of touch with their church. I also know that, that some people have been disappointed with their church or with the church at large and, and have consciously or subconsciously distanced themselves. <laughs> Both groups of people have acknowledged to me that, that they feel like they're missing something, but they're having a hard time finding the motivation, the energy to get back in the groove of community life. So why should they? Why are relationships so central to discipleship? What makes them worth the risk and the effort? Well, let's look at the next couple of verses, 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. It's a pretty strong statement John is making. He pits love and life against hatred and death without leaving any middle ground. You're either loving people and living, he says, or hating people and dying. And by loving, I don't think he means tolerating people or relating to people from a safe distance or interacting with people when you have to. He's talking about taking an active, and even sacrificial interest in other people's well-being and happiness. And and when he talks about loving each other and a brother or a sister, I don't think he means loving only those people you happen to be close to, or whose company you enjoy, or who see things the way you do. I think he's talking about anyone and everyone who's part of whatever community we find ourselves in, and especially the church community. And interestingly, John uses two different words for life here in these verses. Uh, Down in verse 17, he uses the word bios, which means physical, biological life. But here in verses 14 and 15, he uses the word zoe, which describes soul life, spiritual life, the life of God. Zoe is, is life that goes beyond mere existence. It's life that's satisfying and beautiful and even eternal. Uh, The difference between bios life and Zoe life is, is like the difference between a fast food burger and a filet mignon from Ruth's Chris. One will keep you alive, barely. The other will bring a smile to your face and strength to your body and soul. John is telling us that we can exist without love, on a rock, on an island, but if we want to live, we have to love. We have to be deeply and personally invested in the lives of other people. That's what we were made for. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. When God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, he wasn't just talking about marriage. He was talking about love. He was talking about relationships. But but what exactly does it mean to love another person? What is John inviting us into? Well, I poked around online for some definitions. Some were pretty dry and some were pretty lame. Uh, According to the Oxford Dictionary, love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Uh, According to the Urban Dictionary, love is that tingly feeling you get and you don't know why. Uh, A website called Life Hacks offered a handful of definitions. Love is never rushing into relationships. Love is giving yourself a chance. Love is maintaining privacy. (laughs) And overall, I was surprised at how feeling-oriented and how self-centered the definitions and descriptions of love were. Way different from John's definition, which which is both scary and wonderful. Uh, Let's let's look at the last couple verses in our section. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Well, John makes clear that love is more than feelings, more than words. Love is action, sacrificial action on behalf of another person. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, he writes, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, I don't think John was expecting these Christians to literally die for each other. But he was expecting them to sacrifice for each other in practical and, and everyday ways. Uh, recently, I heard someone describe love as disadvantaging yourself for the sake of another. Now, I've tried to track down the source. Someone pointed me to Tim Keller, but seems like he got it from somewhere else, too. Whoever said it, I think it comes close to what John is getting at, disadvantaging yourself for the sake of another. It's what Jesus did for us. He disadvantaged himself of heavenly glory and became one of us. He disadvantaged himself of earthly power and wealth and status, coming instead as a peasant child to an oppressed people. He disadvantaged himself of legal rights and religious reputation and instead took on himself our guilt and bore the brunt of religious hatred. He disadvantaged himself so that we might be advantaged, forgiven, restored, made new. Now, laying down your life for someone is, of course, it's the, the ultimate disadvantaging of self. But as I said, I don't think that's what John was calling for. But he was calling for sacrifice, for giving up time or energy or money or privilege or power in order to advantage another person. Uh, He illustrates it in the next few verses. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has not pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He doesn't say if anyone has extra material possessions, if anyone has clothes they're not wearing or money they don't need or time they're not using or power they don't want, that we should share that excess. No, he's saying if we have any material possessions, any time, any energy, any privilege, any power, we should be prepared to share it freely and sacrificially. That's the scary part. The sacrifice, the giving up, the disadvantaging of myself. What if I don't have enough? What if I'm enjoying the the clothes or the money or the time or the power that I have? Disadvantaging yourself at home might be as simple as giving up your preferences when it comes to chores around the house or what show you watch or where you go on vacation. It might be as profound as giving up your freedom and privacy, opening up your home to entertain someone or to care for someone or even to welcome someone into your family. Disadvantaging yourself at work might be as simple as cleaning up the break room or taking the shift that no one wants. It could be as profound as giving up a promotion so a younger or a more disadvantaged person might get their promotion. Disadvantaging yourself at school might mean sitting with the uncool kids rather than trying to boost your own status by who you hang out with. Disadvantaging yourself at church might mean giving up some of your freedom on the weekends to make a regular commitment to serving children or students. It might mean giving up your musical preferences for the sake of someone else's worship experience. It might mean boomers giving up our power and preferences and letting younger generations build a church that will serve and reach their generation. Disadvantaging myself, inconveniencing myself, lowering myself. These are the risks of love the risks of one anothering. In the weeks to come, we're going to talk about things like empathy, honesty, hospitality, vulnerability, forgiveness, caring. These things can be scary and and uncomfortable and costly. It's enough to make us wonder if we're better off as a rock, as an island, better off doing life or faith on our own. But then we hear John reminding us, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. So as we head into a new year and into the church of the future, do we want to settle for bias or do we want to experience zoe? Do we want to survive or thrive? When we dare to live a with-others life, we discover life as it was meant to be lived. When we dare to live a with-others life, when we accept the risks of loving one another, we discover life as it was meant to be lived, as God designed us for. Which means there can be no disciple-making apart from relationships. We need one another to be disciples and to make disciples. And by one another, I'm not just referring to our church relationships, but to all the relationships of our lives, because every one of them becomes a venue for spiritual growth and and impact. Uh, On a personal level, I was... I was determined to get the new year off to a strong spiritual start. I got myself a new journal so I could start fresh. Set my alarm for a nice early start on Monday morning. I opened up to my Encounter with God devotional for the first time since taking a break for Advent. I was all prepared for the Lord to call me into some deeper spiritual practice like prayer or study or reflection. Maybe he was going to challenge me in some area of ministry to be a stronger preacher or leader or pastor. Eagerly, I turned to the scripture for the day, which turned out to be Matthew 19, where some Pharisees challenged Jesus on the subject of divorce. And he responds by recalling the words of Moses. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, it's a beautiful passage, but, but I wondered what the relevance was to the first day of 2023. I was kind of hoping for, for something grander, something with cosmic implications. Instead, the writer concluded the devotional by saying simply, if you're married, commit your marriage afresh to God and do something special for your spouse. Well, doing something special for my spouse was certainly a nice idea. But again, I I was hoping for something more dramatic, more heroic than that. But when I remembered what I was preaching about this week, The importance of relationships, the primacy of love. (laughs) It struck me that maybe the most grand and noble thing I could do this year would be to love Karen more fully and sacrificially. Maybe that will be the context in which God makes me a better disciple, a better pastor, a better human being. Being a disciple and making disciples isn't only about your devotional life and your Bible knowledge. It's also about your marriage and your friendships and your parenting and your neighboring and your social media and how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. So with all of this in mind, as we head into the winter, in addition to our weekly messages, we'd like to invite you into some events and opportunities to one another this season. Uh, We're gonna be offering three short-term groups, the marriage course, personal finance course, the alpha course, and the ruthless elimination of hurry. Now, if you've never taken the risk of joining a group, these short-term groups are a great way to, to try it for a handful of weeks, now focusing on a particular need or interest. So you can find more info at grace.org slash groups. A second invitation is to what we're calling winter warmers. Now these are gonna be casual one-off gatherings for a light meal or dessert. That will simply allow you to have some fun with people and make some connections to folks from your local campus. It works online too, and Pastor John will tell us more about it in a minute. Thirdly, in February, we'll be hosting an evening with Andy and Amy Crouch. Now, Andy is a well known author who's done a lot of writing and speaking on the intersection of family life and technology. And Andy's going to be joined that evening by his 20-something-year-old daughter, Amy. And they'll be helping us learn from different generational perspectives how technology can enrich our lives and relationships and faith journeys. And of course, January is a great time to try one of our ongoing life groups that meet all nights of the week all over Greater Boston, online and in person. Now, any one of these things may involve a certain amount of risk for you. Joining a a group of people you don't know. Exploring some vulnerable areas of life like marriage or finances or faith. But taking that risk might just make the difference between a bios year and a Zoe year for you. Well, like I said, I I don't remember exactly what we said at that youth meeting back in seventh grade. But I do remember how good it felt that night to be part of a group of people who, like me, were trying to figure out life and faith in a formative season of our lives. And I think I decided that night that I didn't want to be a rock or an island. As it turned out, the relationships I formed in that youth group saw me through middle school and high school and and all the way into adulthood. A few of those guys are still in my life today. I am who I am today as a disciple and even as a pastor, in large part because of those relationships and others like them that I have found in the church through all the years and seasons of my life. And I don't want you or me to miss out on those kinds of relationships in this season of our lives. So let's try one anothering this year. Because when we dare to live a with others life, we discover life as it was meant to be lived. Let's pray for a minute. Thank you, Lord, for showing us what love looks like for disadvantaging yourself to the point of death so that we might live and love with you and each other. Forgive us, Lord, for our fear and complacency and self-centeredness when it comes to relationships. Help us, Lord, this year to follow you into love and life as it was meant to be lived. In Jesus' name, amen.